to the Gordon Asset Management Podcast. It's an economic problem and, and ensuring that we have affordable and reliable uh, energy here in the U.S. is, uh, I think, a very high priority that uh, uh, the administration ought to focus on. Longer term, if we get strong demand growth, strong economic growth, and we don't have reinvestment to bring new supply to the market, we could see a tighter market. Snap your fingers and instantly turn all cars and trucks electric. It would still take 25 years to change the transport base to electric. We are thinking of oil companies incorrectly. Uh, I've been totally wrong on oil prices. It was a good quarter, and we've been investing steadily in growing our production. See, I don't know who's running the energy policy in the White House, but it's sort of malpractice the level of material. Well, I think there's a degree of complacency in terms of the geopolitical risk premium. What we could end up seeing is we have been rang the Fed oil prices rally aggressively. This is really something that comes down to geopolitical issues at now, this point. On to the show. Welcome to the Gordon Asset Management Podcast. This is Todd Zeppel, partner in the farm. With me, Joe Gordon, managing partner of the farm. And special guest, Brad Olson. Brad is co-founder of Recurrent Investment Advisors, as well as the lead portfolio manager on the Recurrent MLP Infrastructure Fund. Brad, thanks for joining us back on the podcast. Hey, Todd. Hey, Joe. How are you guys? We're good. How you doing? Doing well. Thank you. Well, Brad, clearly there's a lot going on in the energy markets right now. Uh, and that obviously has an impact on pretty much every facet of the economy, uh, both here in the U.S. and globally. Uh, so let's start. You know, it was just back in July that Biden went out to Saudi Arabia. Everybody remembers the fist bump heard around the world with M- MBS, uh, basically hat in hand, asking for Saudi Arabia to increase production. Uh, Clearly, that didn't happen. And since then, OPEC had actually uh, cut production by two million barrels. So a lot of movement in the industry right now. You know, obviously, inflation's a hot button issue. Can you break down how you guys view the current energy markets and how that uh, potentially impacts inflation? Yeah, look, I think the the right way to think about OPEC from a big picture perspective is that OPEC is is kind of like the Federal Reserve of the oil market. And the same way that the Fed doesn't like rates to be at zero because it means you've got nowhere to go in terms of cutting, um, OPEC doesn't like there to be an obvious lack of spare oil production capacity in the market. And when you look at for the last two years, OPEC has under delivered on the barrels that they've promised. What does that mean from a big picture perspective? Well, it means that in a world that is not spending enough on new oil wells, your biggest group of suppliers, OPEC, are telling you that they're running into the same issue. They didn't invest during COVID, and now they're unable to provide the number of barrels that that they thought they'd be able to. And so this cut, I would kind of describe in, in two separate ways. One is that OPEC does not like having zero spare capacity. And by making a 2 million barrel a day cut, they now can claim that, hey, we've kind of been under delivering by 1 million, but we're cutting by two. So really the net effect of that is about 1 million barrels less into the market a day. The other thing which you you mentioned is that there is clearly um, 
I'll just say antipathy between the the current administration, the Biden administration, and specifically the government in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia's view is we need a world that is based on market forces that is going to indicate when it's time to go find more oil. Saudi Arabia very accurately has said the world doesn't have enough oil. We've been taking massive amounts out of storage all year long. We need to drill for more. And at a time when everyone should be following a very clear price signal that we need to drill for more, the U.S. dropped 200 million barrels out of its strategic reserve to disrupt that price signal right before a midterm election. So there's no doubt that there's also a personal aspect or or at least government to government aspect where OPEC is saying, we don't want to be running on empty from a spare capacity perspective. That's number one. And number two, we want the market to understand that we need more oil and doing things like, uh, you know, expunging a, a third of the strategic petroleum reserve at a time like this is making it harder for independent private capital to find its way into the oil field. So, you know, what it does is it kind of sets us up in, in the same scenario we came into this year with, which is we don't have enough oil and there aren't that many rigs out in the field finding new oil. And so OPEC is basically, in my mind, kind of this policy statement by OPEC is confirming what what a lot of you know energy experts already knew, which is that we're not drilling enough. And uh, you know, I think the second signal is that the U.S. government isn't going to be able to continuously pump out a strategic petroleum reserve, and so they need to adopt uh, a different policy in the way they treat the oil market as well. What would you say, Brad, about the there's some information out there that, that uh, since the uh, oil trades in dollars, that with the artificially high in, uh, 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 strength of the dollar, that a cut really doesn't impact them all because the cash flow is so good, especially uh, for what they're selling to other countries that have to trade and purchase in dollars. Yeah, you know, this is a, a deep, a deep question that you just asked and one that we've talked a lot about, which is ironically, historically, the Fed hiking interest rates has historically added to dollar strength. And when you think about what that does, it makes oil even more expensive to everybody else around the world. Obviously, we think oil is expensive in U.S. dollars. Well, if your currency has lost 20 percent of its value compared to a U.S. dollar, you're not just paying our oil price, you're actually paying 20% more than the oil price we see here at the pump. And so, you know, from a big picture perspective, um, we have made the point that the, the Fed raising rates actually exacerbates the energy crisis because for most people, energy is not a discretionary purchase. You drive to work, you buy, you know, gas or some sort of form of heating fuel for your home, the vast majority of energy purchases we make are non-discretionary. And so the Fed, by hiking rates, you know, the the quip that you may have heard that the Fed can't print barrels of oil, you know, the, the Fed's policy doesn't make the energy situation any easier. And in fact, Joe, as you pointed out, for every country besides the U.S., the Fed's current policy is making energy prices doubly expensive. Yeah, so before we go and talk about the portfolio, just a couple geopolitical macro uh, uh, questions just to get your firm's viewpoint. Uh, Number one, uh, who do you think blew up the uh, pipelines up there, Nord Stream 1 and 2? Do you think it was Putin to 
uh, do a false flag operation, or do you think it was some Navy SEALs with some cooperation with some Scandinavian countries? You know, I, I think um, this is this is very far out of my uh, zone of expertise, but I, I mean, my guess would probably be that it's hard for me to understand why Putin would do it, to be completely honest with you. You know, if you're Putin, you you want the resumption of gas flows to always be in your back pocket so that if this war comes to a conclusion, your ability to effectively reestablish ties with the West can be done on an accelerated basis. I mean, I don't know that Eastern European countries have the wherewithal to do something like this, but the the countries that have the most to gain from a permanent, uh, you know, destruction of Nord Stream would be Poland, uh, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, basically all the countries who have always felt like Russia is always their number one problem, but they feel jerked around by the fact that Russia goes from foe to friend and back to foe for every other country in Europe. And so, you know, I think that you could make the argument that Ukraine combined with a variety of these other countries have the most to gain from the explosion of Nord Stream. Um And obviously, Ukraine has been much more open about the fact that they were involved on the infrastructure attack on the Crimean bridge that occurred uh, just this past weekend. So I think, you know, you do have a pattern of infrastructure attacks from Ukraine and and its allies. And, uh, you know, again, Russia, Putin is viewed as kind of a chess master, classic KGB guy, but KGB guys love optionality and they love having kind of a full, a full, uh, plethora of tricks to draw from. And I think completely closing off part of Nord Stream permanently is just not consistent with Putin's kind of optionality focused uh, strategies that he's used in the past. Now, Brad, we have all these geopolitical risks out there right now, war, protests. Uh, We have the SPR that at some point will have to be replenished. Are we setting ourselves up for this whipsaw higher in oil prices based on the macro situation? Well, you know, the reality through the history of the oil market and something we've talked a lot about, and we put out a, a white paper, research paper back in uh, in the summertime to talk about this. The headlines are always focused on individual political, geopolitical events when it comes to oil. But the reality is that an oil market that is constantly held hostage by geopolitics is much more indicative of of an oil market where there's not enough investment and not enough drilling going on. We we made the point that if you look back to the early 70s, the, the United States and much of the Western world spent about five or six years trying to find every explanation for high oil prices, except for looking at the fact that we weren't drilling enough oil wells. So you had, you know, Nixon take us off the gold standard. He imposed price controls. Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter continued price controls. And this idea that we just need to get through one or two uh, Arab-Israeli wars, or we need to get through one or two disruptions in the Soviet Union, and then the oil market will be fine again. This kind of form of denial you know, coincided with a very similar set of headlines as we're seeing today, which is, you know, can we sue OPEC? Can we pass a NOPEC bill in D.C.? 
These are all ideas that appeared in the 1970s for the first time. Can we sue Exxon? Can we sue refining companies as a way to fix this problem? And when we look at it, the reality is that current investment in oil and gas, and you can blame ESG, you can blame BlackRock, they all have played a part in this, but investment in new energy supply is 60 to 70% lower than it was a decade ago. And the reality is a decade ago, we had the Arab Spring. It's not like geopolitics went away, but the Arab Spring did not immediately translate into a surge in oil price because a decade ago, the United States, for example, was spending about $500 billion a year. Today, we're spending less than $300 billion a year looking for new sources of oil. So I think when people say, hey, you know, everything that's happened in the oil market has been geopolitical, and whenever geopolitics goes away, oil is going to crash or correct. I think that kind of misses the point that the only reason geopolitics have become so important is because we've done such a bad job finding new energy over the last, call it, you know, five to seven years. So last macro question, um, what do you make of, uh, what's your firm's view on the European Union redefining green energy to include uh, natural gas and nuclear? That, that happened within the last 60 days. And then also the new prime minister in the UK basically declaring in her first week where we have plenty of oil offshore. Everyone knows that we're going to drill offshore again. We're also going to frack onshore. Any comment there? Yeah, well, you know, look, the, the EU, uh, you could say, went on an energy diet uh, over the last decade uh, by throwing out all the food in their cabinet. And obviously, if any friend of yours or mine said, hey, I'm going to lose weight, I started by throwing out all the food in my house, you'd look at them a little bit curious because it's not a great way to go about it. It's not a very strategic way to go about it. And, you know, back in May, I actually was in Europe and we were on a uh, investor tour talking to different kind of large insurance companies and banks. And, you know, the, the reality is, I think for a lot of Europeans who didn't pay very close attention to energy policy until the last nine months, you know, the, the comment was, this was something that no Europeans paid attention to, frankly. And we allowed ourselves to become completely dependent on Russian energy and we would look at checklists that said nuclear bad, natural gas bad. And the reality is that Gazprom isn't a large, you know, it's not a large investment opportunity in most people's benchmarks. So they, they enjoyed a world where they could invest completely away from the energy sector while still transferring huge amounts of money on a government level to, to you know, countries like Russia and organizations like Gazprom. So I think for Europe, this has been a big wake up call. Oh, back in May, when we talked about the fact that, you know, taking sulfur out of your diesel fuel, uh, getting fertilizer to grow food with, all of those things relied on natural gas. A lot of Europeans looked with, frankly, just kind of a blank stare of, man, we really screwed this policy up. And so I think one thing that is encouraging for whether it's a policy or an ESG perspective, you know, one thing that's been encouraging is the fact that people are starting to understand that having no plan or throwing out all the food in your cabinet just leads you to kind of pig out on junk food like coal power, which is what they're currently doing. And if you want to get rid of coal power, you have to have a thoughtful plan that includes nukes and includes natural gas. And we're seeing that recognition. Unfortunately for Europe, it's going to take, you know, three to five years to really bring nuclear and natural gas back into the mix in a, in a sustainable way. 
Yeah, so transitioning, then let's talk about the portfolio. Your uh, uh, what I noticed, uh, according to Morningstars, your your one of your top ten positions since you've had you've increased the share count by over fifty percent recently is Chenier. And I and sort of as a segue from what we just talked about, redefining green to include natural gas. Tell us about the thesis on Chenier. Yeah, so Chenier is the the United States' largest uh, gas exporter, and they they have a very unique footprint, basically taking excess gas that uh, is produced in the United States and shipping it to Latin America, Asia, or Europe. One of the great ESG stories of the last, frankly, 100 years that nobody talks about is that American per capita carbon emissions, CO2 emissions, are down to where they were before World War II. So over the last 100 years, Americans are not emitting more CO2 pollution than they did in the early days uh, of the automobile. And one of the reasons for that is we've been incredibly good at conserving energy. Our homes are more efficient. Our our buildings are more efficient. And what that means is when we find a lot of oil and gas, it's not really finding it for ourselves anymore. It is exporting a surplus to the rest of the world. And when Chenier was originally built, it was kind of viewed as being maybe partially Europe and uh, partially Asia in terms of the destinations for its gas exports. But now, obviously, Chenier is is the main driver of us getting uh, strategic gas uh, gas supply over to Europe. So, you know, when we look at Chenier, one of the things we like a lot about it is it has 20 year contracts that guarantee it gets roughly three dollars per uh, per uh, unit of gas in terms of a fixed fee. But almost every energy facility and I think a lot of investors fail to appreciate that in energy infrastructure, typically 90% of your capacity will be contracted or fairly stable in terms of its cash flow. And the remaining 10% is kept available in case something crazy happens, like a Russian invasion of of Ukraine. And so Chenier in a down market is 90% contracted, but in an up market, you know, they might be getting $3 on their contracts, but for the 10% of capacity that is uncontracted, they might be realizing a $15 or $20 spot margin. So even though it's a small portion of their volumes and their business is largely de-risked, they do have the ability to participate in, uh, you know, gas shortages around the world and making money to alleviate those. And so we've seen Chenier's EBITDA in the last 12 months almost double and again, it's it's doubled the cash flow of the business while only 10% of the capacity was really a floating rate capacity. So still a very uh, stable core business. It's a name, you know, as you mentioned, Joe, that we bought throughout year to date 2022 and continue to think uh, they're headed in a very positive direction. Are there any other publicly traded LNG exporters uh, that you own or are looking at owning in the portfolio? You know, one of the things about the United States, which which is really underappreciated, is that natural gas goes in so many different products uh, that when people say, hey, you know, there's there's only like Chenier is the biggest pure play LNG operator. And after Chenier, you have companies like Sempra, the utility has a relatively small LNG subsidiary. Uh, Freeport is a large LNG operator, but they're private. And then you've got a variety of startup companies. 
Frankly, we find assets that are already operating today with 15 or 20% free cash flow yields. It's hard for a, a company that doesn't have any assets to look attractive in our view, because when you're getting 15 to 20% currently, and you have the potential to buy a company that has a startup five years away, it's just very hard for the returns five years from now to be so good that they make up for the fact that you're getting 20% for the foreseeable future on a company like Chenier. What I would say that's poorly appreciated is that, you know, right now, refiners, which are names we own, like uh, Marathon and Philip 66, to name a couple, what people don't appreciate is that Europe is an extremely diesel-intensive economy. Uh, passenger vehicles are generally diesel-operated. There's a lot of cargo, you know, shipping and trucking and, you know, maritime uh inland like river barges that in Europe use diesel. What people don't understand is that in order to strip the naturally occurring sulfur out of diesel so that we're not creating acid rain and things like that, we actually have to inject natural gas into refinery streams to take sulfur out of our motor fuel. And so because of that, a lot of European refineries have shut down because they can't get enough natural gas to desulfurize their fuel, which has created this massive opportunity for American refiners who access relatively cheap domestic natural gas, blend it into their diesel, their desulfurized diesel, and then they ship that diesel over to Europe for a really healthy margin. And so one thing that people you know, don't necessarily appreciate is that LNG gets all the headlines but we are actually shipping what I would call maybe SNG, solid natural gas in diesel fuel and fertilizer. Fertilizer is another big area where European fertilizer is running at 30 or 40 percent utilization. American fertilizer is running at 100 percent utilization because fertilizer is just basically a physical piled up version of natural gas. So the U.S. is exporting natural gas in tons of different ways that I think, you know, the media doesn't do a good job covering. But one of the ways we're helping Europe through this energy crisis is is not just LNG, but all of these, you know, diesel, fertilizer, and even food are all different forms of, of natural gas. That's extremely well said. So what, when you look at these uh, three refiners, you want Valero being the third one primarily, what... Uh, uh, is remind us of what the impact is of switching from summer to winter or fall blend. Uh, is that a is that a catalyst for the stocks generally? You kind of read that it is, but many times those are opinions. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't. You know, I kind of joke that you wouldn't want to set your watch by the blending uh, seasonality and refiners. The way we kind of think of the refining investment uh, proposition is. An energy investment, and we would like to consider our, our fund in this category, an investment in energy is kind of like owning a call option on bad government policy. And when you have bottlenecks and, and shortages, you, you want that call option. And when we look at the refining industry, it's been said all over the news, the Chevron CEO said, the United States has not permitted a new refinery since 1970. We have shut down a lot of refineries since 1970, and shocker, we continue to use more gasoline, more diesel, and more motor fuels. So in the typical kind of misguided policy we've seen, you know, places like California are actually sending people checks to help them out with, with the increased cost of gasoline, 
But then California is also regulating gasoline producing refineries uh, out of existence. And so when we look at refiners, you know, COVID was kind of the culmination of a lot of bad refining policy where the U.S. government, um, you know, in a handout to a lot of uh, Midwestern swing states has a fixed policy where you have to incorporate more and more biofuel into the fuel pool every single year. And with the incentives the government gave out, it basically led during COVID to a shutdown of 5% of refining capacity and replacing that refining capacity with different things that basically led to animal fats and processed foodstuffs being included into the fuel pool. We looked at that and said, okay, 5% of our motor fuel production capabilities have been taken offline. And at the same time, you know, we're going to go after COVID back to a world where our expectation was people would drive again. And so what we've seen is that, you know, the U.S. has dumped a lot of strategic petroleum reserve oil into the market. But what we've seen is that diesel margins and gasoline margins have continued to stay very high. So, you know, I could go on and on about misguided energy policies, but the U.S. government's dumped 200 million barrels of oil into a market trying to make gasoline and diesel go down. Now, while all those products are related, gasoline and diesel are not fungible. They're not replaceable with oil. And so in a world where policies continue to force refineries to shut down or convert to animal fats processing, and yet we go out and use the same amount of motor fuel every day, um, and I also mentioned Europe is shutting down their refineries. You know, what, what I would say is that this year has not followed the typical refinery seasonal pattern. It's continued to be a story of, you know, today we've got refineries uh, or, or gasoline in California cost two to three dollars more than it does in the rest of the country. So we're continuing to see this call option on bad policy. And we think, you know, re refiners are a great way to express that that policy call option, if you will. So your portfolio owns about 24, 25 stocks. And one of the things we talked about last time was the uh, emphasis in this era that we're in, where energy is considered a, a dirty word, uh, that uh, the focus would be on uh, very light CapEx maintenance and uh, cleaning up debt off the balance sheets and returning cash flow to investors in the form of dividends and even share buybacks. So give us an update on how you feel about your top holdings or even the whole portfolio in general from a, from a balance sheet strength uh, 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 perspective. And, and, and then this is one of the areas that's fascinated me all year is that this space seems to have the best balance sheets, but it's also hated the most. And uh, and then also you just issued this white paper uh, about inflation and the lack of capex, and let's finish the comment on that at the end. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, one thing that is undeniable is that a company that is highly valued will reinvest no matter what its profitability looks like. I mean, we can go and and look at any example, like you know, Amazon and Tesla. Those companies continue to aggressively grow their, their product base and their asset base, even when they were not profitable, because the public markets gave them a huge valuation premium. Uh, by the same token, energy companies, if they're valued below the book value of their assets, have very low incentive to put new assets to work 
if they know that the market's going to value those assets at a discount. And it doesn't matter how high profitability is, nobody wants to throw good money after bad. So this anti-energy environment, reducing the amount of energy investment is a theme we've talked about for years. I'm glad you asked, Joe, because you know a month ago or two months ago, we put out an investor letter where we basically said, you know, today the mutual fund portfolio, the mutual fund trades uh, today at 16 or $17 a share. And we basically did a look back and said, when we launched in 2017, we had about $2.50 of cash flow per share. And we today we've got about $4.50. So not quite a double, but over the last five years, we've seen the underlying cash flow almost double. But to us, the more sustainable and exciting story is that it used to be a portfolio that generated $250, but it also spent close to $2 on CapEx, on new investment and projects. Today, with $450 in cash flow, the CapEx has dropped from $2 to $1. And so when you think about you know, a $16 or $17 portfolio, you've now got $450 of cash flow, but only a dollar being reinvested, meaning that about $350 is truly unencumbered cash flow coming back to you as an investor. And so when people ask us, well, what, how could the yield be 6 or 7%, if you, if you kind of keep in mind the numbers we just walked through, you're talking about a $16, $17 portfolio, you're talking about 350 of unencumbered cash flow, so about a 20% yield, and then 7% of that is being paid out as a dividend. So what people don't appreciate is not only is this yield really competitive, but 13% of the 20% total cash flow available is actually getting reinvested into the balance sheet or has been getting reinvested into the balance sheet. So Joe, to your point, You've seen energy go from a sector that was viewed as as having one of the more uh, risky balance sheets uh, as a sector. Now it's one of the most, it's one of the lowest debt sectors in the S&P 500 and the debt continues to fall. So again, today we look at the portfolio and we say, you've got a hedge on bad government policy. You do have a hedge on commodity prices continuing to be high. But, but even if things stay flat from here, even if oil stays kind of knocking between 80 and $90 and, you know, the refining environment stays comparable and natural gas stays where it is, you know, you're looking at a 20% uh, cash flow yield after reinvesting in the business. And so, look, the reality is we kind of talk about you have two ways to win. The only way the energy sector is going to invest and, and fix the energy shortages we're seeing is if valuations for energy companies go up 50 to 100%. And so our, our uh, the way we manage expectations is let's not count on 100%. Let's not count on a doubling in the portfolio, although that would be great. Let, let's just focus on the fact that right now, if the world doesn't wake up, if we allow the, the villainization of energy to continue, well, then you're going to stay in a super low CapEx world where you clip a 15 to 20% free cash flow coupon every year which isn't the worst thing. And you're doing it with low risk balance sheets and relatively high, you know, I mentioned Shamir earlier, you know, some of these companies we're talking about 80 to 90% of revenues being contractually locked in and you're throwing off a 15 to 20% free cash flow yield. So it's kind of an interesting conundrum we're in where as an energy investor, if the world doesn't wake up, then you're going to keep clipping this, this outsized, you know, 20% 
annual coupon with some of the lowest risk balance sheets in the market. And if the world does wake up, well, then you're going to see the the tens, if not hundreds of, uh, of billions, maybe the, the trillion or two dollars that have come out of energy, uh, you know, as folks like BlackRock and, and other big ESG movers have gotten out of energy. You know, the one thing that could fix the underinvestment in energy is to see, you know, a few trillion dollars come back into the sector, which obviously would have very positive implications for the valuation of the, the companies in our portfolio. But what I'd say right now, and we talked about this in our white paper, is that, you know, we framed today looks a lot like the early 70s in terms of runaway inflation and an unwillingness to invest in new oil wells. You know, if 1973 was the birth of the EPA and the rise of the environmental movement, the U.S. didn't want to invest in new energy back then. It doesn't want to invest in new energy right now. What we saw was that, you know, if 72 was the beginning of that energy crisis, from 72 to 78, the world was in denial. They were more focused on congressional hearings and punishing Exxon. And finally, in 78, really from 78 to 83, People said, hey, you know what? Energy companies are the only ones who can fix this. Let's unleash them. Let's let them put capital to work and, and fix this problem. And so all in, you had a 10-year cycle of the energy problem not really getting fixed. And so depending on whether you say we started this cycle in 20 or 21, you know, when people ask, could this underinvestment in energy cycle go on till 2030? Um Certainly not impossible. You know, look, using the 70s as a very, you know, useful baseline in our view, as we did in our white paper, you know, it took the world close to a decade to wake up from the, the sleepwalk into the, you know, Arab-Israeli conflicts of the early 70s and feels like the world kind of sleptwalked into, you know, Russia-Ukraine. And, and again, 10 years last time around, 10 years was how long it took for people to wake up, say it's not just Russia's fault, it's an investment problem. And so, uh, you know, like we said, whether it's cash flow or whether it's a renewed interest in the sector, we think there are really two ways that energy investors can can come out of this with a portfolio that's probably more diversified. You know, it's a diversification of your return stream and also protect that portfolio against the risk of continued inflation and underinvestment, as, as we've discussed on this pod. Well, yeah, and energy, as we all know, is the only positive sector out of the 11 sectors in the S&P 500 uh, in 2022. So I think that uh, the reticence of a lot of people to go there uh, will be tried as they continue to look at dismal investment performance and everything else they're doing. And and that was that was why I, I said at the top of the, the call that it's interesting to me that the talking heads on CNBC well, tend to now admit, oh, I've doubled my stake. I got a 10% weighting in energy. I mean, and they were bragging about this when energy was up 40 to 50%. Uh, and then it peeled back uh, about half of that, gave half of that back. And, and here we are. One question I wanted to ask about the portfolio, do any of the pipeline names or the refiners that you own, uh, have they gone to a variable dividend where, you know, you got your stated, which is typical in the U.S. markets, but then paying a variable one every quarter or every other quarter based on uh, cash flow? You know, it's a good question. We've seen out of the 23 names in the portfolio today, one um, one of the pipelines uh, went variable dividend. And on the 
refining and uh, kind of more integrated and upstream side, we've seen, I believe, two go uh, go variable. What, what I would say, Joe, because it's a, been a hot topic in the energy world, you know, it sounds funny at a time when a lot of other sectors are feeling the pinch. Energy companies are really struggling with how do we give all this money back uh, now that we've kind of reduced our debt and de-risked our balance sheet. And the, the big picture answer, I'd say, in this stage, which is still early, is that a lot of CEOs have said, you know, I am worried about the ESG friction. Over the last few years, a lot of investors have left energy permanently, and it's equated to about a loss of a 5% or so of our investor base every year over the last few years. And so a lot of CEOs have said, if I have an extra 5% of my market cap lying around, I want to buy back some of this stock, which has been kind of discarded and left for dead by a lot of you know folks who exited for ESG reasons. And I'd like to address the undervaluation first. And if we get to a more reasonable value, then we will institute potentially a, a variable dividend policy. So I would say the first step for a lot of companies has been, let's buy back first. Let's kind of sop up the, the excess supply of stock. And then maybe move to just a pure cash return model. Um, and, and I think that's the right thing to do. I mean, the finance textbooks, which aren't always right, would would say, you know, if your stock is undervalued, then then puts, you know, put money to work buying back your own stock. But my personal prediction is that between special dividends and regular way dividends, we're going to see a portfolio income increase of probably 20% in the next 12 months. I mean, we've already seen 20% increase in portfolio dividends in the last 12 months. And that's just a trend. As I mentioned earlier, you've got 20% cash flow yields. You're only paying out 7 8% as a dividend today. So that number is definitely biased to go, to, to go higher as we move forward. Yeah. So, uh, Zay, do you have any questions? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Joe. I do. Um, now, Brad, if we trip into a global economic recession, do you view the demand destruction that goes along with that as a risk to the portfolio? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think one of the things that uh, we, we go back, you know, the name of our firm, Recurrent, is really a, a tip of the hat to the idea that we don't have all the answers. We haven't found anyone yet who does. But if we go back and look at all these different historical situations, we can start to get a pretty good idea of how the market's going to act if, if something similar happens again. And so your question's a great one. What happens in a recession? And what we saw in the early 70s, which, again, the more research we've done on this, the more it's eerily similar to today. Um, you had a Arab-Israeli war in the early 70s. You had nationalization of resources around the world. And, you know, the U.S. came off the gold standard. Oil price inflation was off to the, you know, off to the races. Before the recession of 1974, you had oil and gas outperform the broad market by 50 or 60 percent. So not all that different from what we're seeing here in 2022. In 1975, you saw energy and the broad market go down comparably, you know, 30 percent pullback for both energy and the broad market. Energy did not underperform. Uh, and obviously, it was coming off 50 to 60 percent outperformance. But as you would probably expect, the Fed created a recession, said mission accomplished. Of course, as the three of us know, talking about energy as much as we do, the energy problem wasn't solved. You had just created a recession. 
And so when the recession ended in 75 and 76, inflation actually went higher than it had ever gone before. And oil prices went higher than they had ever gone before during the Arab-Israeli conflict in the early 70s. And then in the back half of the 70s, as people woke up to this isn't something you can fix with a recession, it's not something you can fix with high interest rates, energy outperformed by, depending on how you look at it, you know, 200 to 400% in the back half of the 70s. So you got your little kind of appetizer of outperformance on the geopolitical tension. You had a recession and, you know, everybody kind of fell. And then you had energy really outperform in the back half of the decade. And so the way we look at it is, look, the reality is um, energy is always going to be viewed as having some economic sensitivity. What I think is really important to note is that historically, energy generally outperformed in recessions until, and this is a big until, you know, COVID was an example of energy being an outlier of negative performance because everyone viewed COVID as the end of kind of human mobility as we know it. And so when you look at energy historically, you know, it outperformed in the 70s, it outperformed in the early 90s, it outperformed in the tech boom and bust of the, the late 90s and early 2000s. It outperformed in the 08 financial crisis. And then its, its downside capture, its underperformance really accelerated between 2015 and 2020. And of course, as we talk about all the time, investors are always fighting the last war. They're thinking about, well, what happened in the last 10 years? And so everyone's kind of looking at this and saying, well, energy is going to be especially vulnerable in a recession. And the argument that we would make is that energy's vulnerability in a recession is pretty well defined by how much investment and how much drilling we're doing. In a world where we're not drilling, like the world of today, energy actually tends to be a pretty defensive sector, even in a, in a recession. And look, we, you know, Joe mentioned, we've peeled back in the summer as you know, concerns about a recession have, have intensified. But I think as long as we remain in this low investment world where nobody's drilling new wells, uh, you can count on energy to be more defensive than it has been in the past and, and potentially be a leader anytime we get good economic data. Because at, you know, same way in the 70s, the energy problem uh, has not been fixed by a long shot. Well, you know, for those on the call that never have experienced uh, gas lines in the 70s, both in 74, 5, and then in 78, uh, and they think they sacrificed this summer paying over five bucks a gallon, they don't know what sacrifice is to wait in line to buy gas for a couple hours. Uh, and then that would be some massive demand destruction right there. So, uh, you know, I remember those days vividly, and uh, it was all about blaming OPEC. And uh, and then also one thing, one comment as well, uh, you may want to comment on, we've heard the saber rattling in Congress, most of the Democrats, about we're going to, we need to bring back the windfall profits tax. They're making too much more. It's big oil's fault. Of course, Joe Biden thinks it's the little corner gas station owner's problem and fault. But comment on that. Do you think there's any risk, political risk? Look, I think what what we know is, uh, you know, and I, I never would have thought that my Soviet Union history class would would come in so handy looking at, you know, the current state of the economy. But, you know, lines don't happen because prices are too high. Lines happen when government tries to control price. And so 
one of the things that obviously the SPR is a way to try to influence or or depress oil markets without creating artificial shortages like the ones that you mentioned in the 70s, Joe. And so I think the reality is um, nobody wants to be pointed at and identified as the reason for gasoline lines. And look, I think uh, I, I, you know, one of my uh, friends from growing up has somehow ended up becoming a lobbyist. And he, uh, you know, always kind of tells me like, the thing that you think politicians are really mad about, they love that thing because they're going to use it in every fundraising letter and fundraising, you know, mailer they send out. And so I think there's a real question of, um, you know, having the big oil as a bad guy is convenient for a lot of politicians because it, it you know, it, it creates a villain in the story. Whereas if politicians really tried to do a windfall profits tax and, you know, in the seventies, we, we look back at this and, the way that they tried to create a windfall profits tax was literally identifying every link in the chain from the well to the pipeline, to the refinery, to the gas station, and apply different price controls and different taxes to all these different segments of the energy industry. Not only did they create a whole lot of inefficiency, but at the end of the day, a lot of energy companies said, I'm getting a tax applied to me that makes this a negative profit product. So I'm just going to produce less gasoline. And I think politicians are very wary of being viewed as the guy who created a shortage. Creating high prices is one thing that I think you can live with. Creating a shortage is something that that politicians know puts them on uh, on real thin ice. So I, I am hopeful that the saber rattling translates into trying to raise money from your constituents. I am hopeful that saber rattling doesn't actually turn into policies that are as bad or, or misguided as some of the price control policies we saw in the in the 70s. Uh, on that note, uh, see, I'm going to turn it back to you. I don't have anything else. It's been a great update, Brad, and uh, we look forward to continuing the same. Keep, keep up the great work. Well, thanks, Joe, and thanks, Todd, for having me on. It's been fun. And thank you, Brad, and thanks to all our listeners for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about Brad or Recurrent, you can check out the website at recurrentfunds.com and follow us everywhere on social media at wealthqb.com. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to click subscribe. Gordon Asset Management LLC is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit wealthqb.com. The information in this podcast is presented for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. Opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect those of Gordon Asset Management LLC, its producers, hosts, or guests. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risks. Neither Gordon Asset Management, LLC, nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.